fulfillment is always better. Far better than anticipation. Our family recently got a puppy. We waited weeks, weeks for that dog to arrive. And not once did I hear from my kids, Dad, oh, we just love anticipating this dog coming. No, I didn't, I didn't hear that from them. I heard, we want the dog yesterday. We want it to be fulfilled. I've also yet to meet a person who's at, at least not yet, okay, who's engaged to be married, say, I just love being engaged. I just love the anticipation. No, no, no. Typically, I hear, I want the wedding day to be tomorrow. It's not today. I want fulfillment. I've also yet to hear of someone looking forward to maybe a vacation or some sort of special, exciting event in their life. And, and they say to me, no matter their age and stage, and they say, oh, I just love waiting. I just love anticipating that vacation. Now, typically, they want to be on vacation again yesterday. They want that exciting thing to come as soon as possible. At the end of the day, fulfillment is far better than anticipation. Because anticipation is not a destination. Anticipation is a passageway. Anticipation is meant to end, to give way to fulfillment. And it's the same in the Bible. It's the same in God's story of redemption from the beginning to Jesus to the very end. And today we are going to behold one of the greatest fulfillments in all of the Bible. And so with that, please open to John chapter 15. The Gospel according to John chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible, you could find one in the pew near you. You could find John on page 886. 886. That will take you to page 1 of John, and you'll kind of fast forward a handful of chapters, and you'll arrive at John 15. We're going to be looking at John 15, 1 through 17 today. And we'll all be helped to keep our Bibles open to this passage as we work through it. This is the best part of the message right here. John chapter 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear much fruit, or bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is God's word for the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to bless the hearing and the applying of his word this day. Lord, we do thank you for today, for this day that you have made. And Spirit, we ask that you would turn the lights on in our hearts and our dim minds, that you would cause us to see your glory in the face of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen your weak servant now. May the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. You who, are, who is our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, before we look at kind of our passage more deeply this morning, uh, let me invite you to kind of zoom out for a moment and see the big picture of John just for a moment. Uh, John is called the beloved disciple. He is a first-hand eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus. And his gospel account from chapter 1 to chapter 21 is all about the glory of God revealed in the Word of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and how His love and His life and His light has broken in to this world. And we've seen that love and light and life break into this world through the works of Jesus, but also through His words, specifically in the I Am declarations of Jesus. In the first 14 chapters of this Gospel, we have heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, as we saw last week. And today we arrive at John 15, and we come to that seventh I am statement from Jesus this morning where Jesus says, I am the true vine. And so, zooming our lens kind of down in, from the big picture to the specific passage that we're in today, here's the big idea of John 
chapter 15, 1 through 17. Here it is. True life and fruitfulness is only possible if we are in union with Christ. True life and fruitfulness is only possible if we are in union with Christ. And here's our outline of of this section of John 15. We're going to look at true fulfillment in verse 1. And then we're going to look at true fruitfulness in verses 2 through 17. So true fulfillment, verse 1. True fruitfulness, verses 2 through 17. So point one, true fulfillment. Look with me at 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Well, in in John chapter 14, Jesus has just given His disciples, His people, then and now, the sure promises of a better home in Him, and a better hope in Him, and that He is going to send the better Helper, the Holy Spirit, that would dwell in and with them and point them to Him. At the close of the chapter, we read there of Jesus saying, Rise, let us go. And so Jesus and the disciples depart from what has been called the upper room, and they're heading to a place, as we'll see in chapter 18 of John, to a place called Gethsemane. And along the way, in light of these promises that Jesus has just made in the upper room in in chapter 14, he, Jesus, exhorts and encourages his disciples then and now in this next part of his farewell sermon. And he begins this section by speaking allegorically. He gives us a word picture to help us understand the truth of who he is. He says, verse 1, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. And this would have been breathtaking for his disciples. Their their jaws would have hit the dirt at hearing him make this claim. And it should take our breath away too. Because there is a reason that this is the seven I am statement. Because what Jesus is claiming here is pregnant with so much great and gracious fulfillment. But in order to see the magnitude of what he is saying, we need to look back in our Bibles. We need to understand this statement in light of what's been said before it. In order to do that, we could look at Genesis 49, or Jeremiah 2, or Isaiah 5, or Ezekiel 15. All of those passages speak of a vine. You don't have to turn there. You can just write some of those down. But listen as I read from Jeremiah 2, verse 21. Referring to the nation of Israel, God's historical people, God says through the prophet, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And then, In Psalm 80, as we heard earlier, as David read earlier, Psalm 80, 8 through 17, in that passage, we see very clearly a movement from God planting and keeping and protecting a vine called Israel. 
but that vine's walls are broken down. Its fruit is plucked. The wild beasts ravage it. It's not a pretty picture of Israel. Israel is described as a degenerate and desolate vine there in Psalm 80. But in the midst of all of those words of judgment, if you're listening closely, there's a glimmer of hope, a future promise and fulfillment in Psalm 80, verse 17. The psalmist speaks of a promised Son of Man. What we see here in John 15 is that Jesus picks up that language from Psalm 80, from Isaiah 5, from Jeremiah 2. He picks up that dying vine language and he, re- he reverses it. He says, I am the true vine. And so Jesus is making an amazing statement here. Bells would have been going off in the disciples' minds. And it should be in ours as well. For Jesus is the fulfillment of that future hope in Psalm 80. He is the true, fruitful, and faithful vine. In the words of of one theologian, D.A. Carson, quote, Jesus is the one to whom Israel pointed, end quote. Where Israel failed, Jesus fulfilled. Where Israel was unfaithful, He was and is faithful. Where Israel was untrue, Jesus was and is true. Where Israel was unfruitful, Jesus was and is fruitful. Jesus changes everything for His people, Jew and Gentile, us, beloved. And none of this fulfillment language right here should really surprise us. Uh, Because as we've seen in John thus far, Jesus has already said, hey, I'm the true and better temple. I'm the true and better living water. I'm the true and better bread. The true and better light. Now he's saying, I am the true and better vine. And what we find is that the Old Testament, where the Old Testament prophesied and promised and planned and anticipated, we see fulfillment in the words of Jesus here in John chapter 15. And if we don't understand this, then we're certainly not going to be able to understand the rest of the metaphor, the rest of what uh, Jesus says in verses 2 through 17. We also want to understand all of the Bible because everything hinges upon our recognition that Jesus is the true fulfillment of the promises of Scripture. That Jesus was right when He said in Luke 24, verse 44, that everything in the law, the prophets and the Psalms, are fulfilled in Him. That as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that He explicitly works in tandem with the Father who is, as it says, the vine dresser and has eternally. And so let us learn from Jesus here, for He and John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is once again teaching us how to read and study and understand the Bible. Jesus is the theme and the telos, which is the goal of the Bible. And if we read from the 
Old Testament into the New and fail to see fulfillment in Christ, past, present, and future, then we are going to misread our Bibles. And so, do you read the Bible like John does? Do you read the Bible like Jesus instructs here? Do you read all of Scripture in light of Christ? Do you read your Bible from start to finish with a Jesus-centered lens? Oh, if it's good enough for John, it should be good enough for us. This has direct application to the teaching and preaching ministry here at HFBC. Christ ought to, be, ought to be the center of our gatherings, the center of the pulpit ministry here, the center of the men's ministry and the women's ministry, the center of the kids' ministry or prayer ministry. And for the record, if any pastor or elder or missionary or guest preacher stands in this pulpit, which belongs to Jesus ultimately, to no man, and fails to preach the gospel, fails to preach Jesus from the Old Testament all the way through Revelation, fails to see Christ as the center and the illuminating core of all the Bible, then he has not done his job faithfully. He has mishandled the word of truth. And as your lead pastor, if I fail to preach the gospel, if I fail to preach Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, then you should fire me. I'm serious. That's my primary responsibility. The pulpit here at HFBC is not a place for opinions. It's not a place for pastoral story time. It's not a place for humor and comedy and entertainment. It's not a place for personality. No, the pulpit here is a place for Jesus. The pulpit here is ultimately a setting that upholds Christ as the diamond of Scripture. Amen? Amen. Well, beloved, here's the point of this first verse here in John chapter 15. Jesus is the true vine. He is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan of salvation, past, present, and future. That's what we see here. And we read in verse 2 and following that a vine assumes branches, does it not? It assumes that there are branches. And we see here in these verses, verses 2-17, through 17, that Jesus isn't only the true vine, but those branches that are connected to Him are only tru- truly fruitful if they are connected and in union with Him. So that leads us to point two, true fruitfulness. True fruitfulness. Let's read once again verses 2-17. through 17. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear much fruit or more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, and someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Well, here in these verses, we see the metaphor of Christ being the vine and the branches, his people, extended and explained. But in order to further kind of unpack and understand what Jesus is saying here, we got to go back. We got to go back to chapter 14, verse 20. Chapter 14, verse 20. There we read that the promised better helper, after Christ ascends, would come. And on that day, the disciples will know that Jesus is in the Father and that the Father is in Jesus and that Jesus is in his people. And so this whole section is really kind of a, an unpacking of what that actually looks like. For in light of the promise of union with him, being branches as a part of the vine, by the work of the Spirit, Jesus is saying, I am the true vine, you are the branches. And we, we ought to notice that there are two kinds of branches here in this section. Two kinds of branches. First, we see that there are those, verse 2, that don't bear fruit and are taken away. Those that, verse 6, don't abide in the vine and are gathered and thrown into fire and burned in eternal judgment. And an example of this type of branch is Judas. It's Judas, as we've seen earlier in John. He looked like a branch. He was with Jesus and the disciples, like a branch. But in the end, Judas' life revealed that he was not a living branch, but a dead branch that bore dead fruit of deceit, of dishonesty, of pride of self-righteousness, and ultimately of betrayal. Judas looked like a living branch, but was actually dead. And it's here where we should check our own lives and ask ourselves, what does my life look like? Am I alive? Am I a, a true, spiritually alive branch? a true living branch? Or am I this sort of branch? It's kind of there, but disconnected from the life source of Jesus ultimately. We should check our hearts. Now I want to address, from there, I want to address an elephant in the room with this passage. Some have argued from these verses that one can lose their salvation. 
And, and I, I, should, I should just say this rather crassly, that if, you, if we could lose our salvation, we would. We would. But that, what we see here, is that if we can truly be a living branch one day and then lose our living status the next, then we make Christ out to be a liar. And here's what I mean by that. In John chapter 10, 28, Jesus says, I give my people, my sheep, my branches, eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so, if you are truly a Christian, then you are secure. You are a secure branch in the vine, Christ Jesus. And nothing can change that. Nothing. Your salvation is secure in Christ. And you are, as it says there in verse 9, loved by Jesus. And nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. And this is not because of anything that you have done or, 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 that, or that you or, you or I are just kind of really lovely and really good people. No, this is fully by the grace of God. Fully. Because in the end, we should all be cut off. We should all be cast out. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone in this room is a sinner. And the wages of sin is what? Death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. But if you are a Christian, here is your hope. Here is your assurance in the good news of the Gospel. Here it is. That Jesus, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the promised offspring, came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. He was faithful and fruitful. And then he went to the cross. And on the cross, he suffered under God's wrath against your sin and my sin. He took that upon himself. Took death itself upon himself. Once and for all. For all of his people. And on the cross, Christ was cut off. And he bore the judgment that we deserved. And there he died. But he did not stay dead. Didn't stay dead. For after being laid in the tomb three days later, he got up in power and glory and authority. And why did he do all of this? He did all of this so that all of his people, all of his branches can be gathered up and not thrown into fire, but be gathered up and grafted into the vine, as Paul says in Romans 11, and brought into union with Christ, the true vine, saved and given life now and forevermore. That is the good news of the gospel. And there's only one response to this good news. It's repenting of your sin. All of those ways that you have sought life outside of Jesus. All of those ways that you've thought that you can work your way to salvation and turn toward Jesus. The only way of salvation by grace, through faith today, because His work in the Gospel alone saves. 
Oh, and if you've done this, then like that, you have been brought into union with Christ, the true vine. And your spiritual death has been exchanged for Christ's life. Your unfaithfulness has been exchanged for Christ's faithfulness. Your unfruitfulness, ultimately, has been exchanged for Christ's fruitfulness. This is what it means to be united to Christ by faith in union with Him. What undeserved grace. What undeserved grace. And what assurance and security for Christians. But if you are here today and you do not know Jesus, if you're you're not a part of the vine, then you must hear this. Your good works will not save you. Simply coming to church will not save you. Knowing some things about Jesus, believing that he's kind of a good guy, a wise guy, will not save you. Being a good person will not save you. And on the last day, you will be gathered up, but thrown into a place called hell. It's a reality. And so hear the gospel. Hear the good news of Jesus today and respond in repentance and faith. Hear the words of Jesus. Believe on Him for salvation and for life and for true fulfillment. Believe on Him for He has brought fulfillment and fruitfulness to this world. And that can be applied to you by grace through faith today. That's the good news of Jesus. But if you are here today and you are a Christian, one who has been brought into union with Christ, then Jesus says that there are six things that you should know about yourself. Six things about a living branch here. That's what we see in these these verses. What does it mean, though, to be a fruitful branch? What does it mean to be connected to Christ? It's one thing to know that we have been united to Him by faith. But what does it actually look like? Well, six things here. A living branch is fruitful in Christ. That's what we see in verses 2-3. through Abides in Christ. That's what we see in verses 4-10. through Has joy in Christ. That's what we see in verse 11. Displays the sacrificial love of Christ. That's what we see there in verses 12-13. through Has a friend in Christ. That's what we see in verses 14 through 15. And is chosen in Christ. Verses 16 to 17. So let's walk through these. If you didn't catch all of those, it's okay. Let's walk through them. You can write them down as we go. First, a living branch is fruitful in Christ. This is what we see in verses 2 through 3. What separates a living branch from a dead branch? Good fruit. Good fruit. What is the fruit? Well, first, it's an intimate relationship with Jesus. That's that's what the fruit of the Christian life is. An intimate relationship with Jesus. A fellowship with Him. A life marked by the Word and the Gospel. That's first and foremost what a fruitful life is. And a fruitful life is marked by 
those ten points of a cross-shaped life from John chapter 13. A life of preferring others, bearing with others, serving others, listening to others, forgiving others, pursuing peace with others, being hospitable toward others, seeking the best for others, saying when necessary the hard things in love to others, and being charitable to others. If you'd like to hear more on those, you can listen back to that uh, message on John chapter 13. But one thing that we have to notice here is that none of these things can be lived out faithfully and fruitfully apart from local church membership. All of that assumes that we are committed to Christ vertically and committed to one another horizontally. We cannot do any of those things without being committed to one another in love, in Christ. Further, a fruitful life in Christ is also marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, right? Love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. We also need to see here that in order to be more fruitful, in order to be a fruitful branch, we also must be pruned by the vine dresser. Like a, like a rose bush that is pruned in order to bear beautiful blossoms. A faithful and fruitful branch is pruned. Now, what does this pruning actually look like, though? What does that mean? Well, pruning happens through any trial or persecution or affliction or sickness or estrangement that we encounter in this life. And what is the purpose of that pruning? Well, it's regrowth. It's, it's new growth. It's, it's more fruit. In the New Testament, this process of pruning is called sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God in and through our lives which makes us more and more like Christ each day. And it comes in part through pruning. And when we, when we become a Christian, and we're brought into union with Christ through the Gospel, from that moment on, we are as justified. right? Verse 3, washed and purified in the work and Word of Christ once and for all. We're as justified as we will ever be but we are not as sanctified as we will ever be until glory. And so, Jesus' message is clear here. Sanctification through pruning is inevitable. And maybe it's just, just me, but aren't we often surprised by pruning? We're often surprised by it. We often live as if we're in control, as if we're invincible, independent, impenetrable to pain. We see ourselves as entitled to the good life. Isn't this what prosperity gospel preachers promise? The good life without suffering? A life marked by prosperity? But this isn't reality. Not according to Jesus in John 15. For in this life, pruning comes through change, big or small. Through the loss of a loved one. Through job loss. 
through mental illness, either in ourselves or, or worked out in a family member, through chronic illness, through, through persecution for, for being a Christian, any trial that we encounter. These prune us in order to grow our faith and make us more like Christ, the one who was well acquainted with grief. And so these words ought to comfort us from Jesus here, for they are spoken by a co-sufferer. For Jesus walked the path of pruning, of suffering ahead of us. And so, beloved, we should not be surprised when pruning comes. Pruning is normal. Suffering is normal. It's part and parcel of a life in a fallen world. And it's part and parcel of God's plan for His people, as we see here. Not in a cruel way or in a sadistic way, but in a way that produces endurance and character and dependence and good fruit and deeper faith in our lives. This is why pruning comes. So in light of this passage, we should not think of pruning as a stranger, but as a guest and a path toward a deeper abiding in Christ. And that leads us to the second sub-point here, abide in Christ. A living and fruitful branch abides in Christ. That's what we see in verses 4-10. through 10. When we are brought into union with Jesus through the Gospel, by the Spirit, we are brought into abiding fellowship with Christ. And this is what's called mutual indwelling. Mutual indwelling. Christ abides in us. We abide in Christ. Two sides of the same coin. Paul picks this abiding and mutual indwelling language up in, in his other letters, in his New Testament letters, in that phrase, in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, appears over ten times per epistle, per letter from Paul. And each time he refers to it, he's talking about being in union and finding life and salvation and fruitfulness in Christ. And so every time that Paul uses that language in Christ, he is speaking of being a part of the vine, a part of Christ himself. But it's important to recognize that, that this abiding and the fruit that comes from abiding is not grown by like self-effort or, or self-determination, the power of positive thinking. It's fruit that grows only by being in Christ, who is the root. All true fruit comes from the life-giving true root that is Christ Himself. And this is what Jesus means there in verse 4 when He says that we can only be fruitful if we are in Christ. Apart from being united to Him by faith, we can do, verse 5, what? Nothing. And that literally means nothing. And then notice verse 7, that abiding in Jesus is to abide also in His Word. To have His Word dwelling richly in our hearts, as Paul says in Colossians 3.16. And so make no mistake, to abide in Christ is to abide in His Word. His Word and His person are inseparable. They go together always in the Christian life. So what does your time in God's Word look like? Does it exist? Is it fruitful? Or are you trying to live the Christian life in your own strength? By your own power? Also, are you eager to gather each Lord's Day in order to abide in Christ corporately through His Word as we, as we hear it preached? As we pray? take the Lord's Supper as we sing together. 
If you desire a deeper relationship with Jesus, a deeper abiding with Jesus, then abide in his words. Not just the red letters, if you have one of those Bibles, but all of his words from Genesis to Revelation. For when you do, you will find greater and deeper life and abundant joy. That brings us to the third sub-point there. A living and fruitful branch has joy in Christ. Verse 11. I'm convinced that we don't talk about joy enough in the Christian life. We don't talk about joy enough. So I ask you, are you a joyful person? Are you a joyful person? Or has circumstances, have a certain set of circumstances in your life, stolen your joy? Maybe it's sickness or, or cancer or an addiction or, or a spiritually wayward spouse or child. Loss or some sort of standing conflict. Consider, are you a joyful person? Truly joyful. I commonly hear well-intentioned Christians say, I just don't feel joy. I go to church, it's joyless. I pray, it's joyless. I read my Bible, it's joyless. I have fellowship with other Christians and it's pretty joyless. I'm trying to find joy and I just can't find it. Brother, sister, Christian, stop finding or seeking joy. Stop stop trying to find it. If you are in Christ, then you possess all of the joy that you need. You just need to recognize and remember that. Joy is not subjective. It's not a mere emotion or a feeling. No. No, joy is objective and it's objectively found by abiding in Christ. True joy is found in and through Him. So stop looking for joy. If you're a Christian, you already have it. And if you're prone to forget the joy that you have, seek accountability. Find someone else in this church to text you, to call you throughout the week. Hey, how's your joy today? Invite it. Invite that into your life in both trials and triumphs. Fourth, a living and fruitful branch displays the sacrificial love of Christ. We captured this a moment ago in, in that subpoint one of being fruitful in Christ, but notice that love isn't an option for Jesus. It's essential. Love isn't an option. It's essential. It's a command that we obey. And like joy, love is not a mere emotion or a feeling. Love is objective and objectively found in and through Jesus, not just individually, personally, but collectively as a church. And so we should know, we should note that we could be the most theologically literate people. We could be pro-Bible, pro-life, pro-traditional marriage, pro-biblical family, pro-whatever. And these are all good things. But if we have not kindness, if we have not tenderheartedness, if we have not love for one another here as a local church, here in Hillsboro, then we have nothing. Nothing. And our words will be like clanging gongs. Our actions will be to no avail. And we're going to be left like separatist sectarians in our own echo chamber. I love the way Francis Schaeffer puts it. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion without love, is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to de-emphasize sound doctrine and overemphasize just doing Christian stuff. No, Christian love and doctrine go together. 
Those are two sides of the same coin. You don't get one without the other. And Christian love necessarily draws boundaries. It is exclusive. It is not inclusive. And it's meaningful when it's connected to God's commandments here through Christ. And it has been said that the standard of our love is Christ's love. And Christ's love was demonstrated through what? Death. Through death. And so Christian love is displayed, verse 13 there, by laying down our lives for one another. Laying down our very passions and our preferences and our prerogatives for another, just as Christ did for sinners. We are to lay down our lives, take responsibility for one another here at HFBC. Now, I'm not saying that we should exalt also, I'm also not saying that we should exalt sentimentality over truth. I'm not saying that the mission of the church is to set aside its theology and just love on everyone. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that where there is fire, there's smoke. Where there is a healthy local church, there the gospel bears fruit. The fruit of love amongst the members of a local church. And so let's let the living, living and loving heart of Christ be reflected in the living and loving heart of this local church here at HFBC. Fifth, a living and fruitful branch has a friend in Christ. This is what we see in verses 14 through 15. Just briefly, through the gospel, those in union with Christ are called out of this world and adopted into a family. We are brought into a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a vine in Christ. And when we are brought into union with Jesus, Christ not only becomes our Savior and our Redeemer and our Lord, but He also becomes our intimate friend. What a joy. What a privilege to call Christ, our Savior, a friend. What a privilege that Christ calls us those Christians in this room, friends of His. All glory to God for that. Sixth, a living and fruitful branch is chosen in Christ. This is what we see in verses 16 to 17. Here, Jesus cannot get any clearer. He pulls no punches here. Ultimately, He initiates. He chooses. And union with Him, life in Him, fruitfulness in Him is the result of sovereign grace being applied to us through the gospel day by day. And that ought to humble us. That ought to humble us and cause us to delight and marvel at what Jesus has done in the saving of sinners. This ought to lead us to also, verse 16, to go and proclaim the gospel and make disciples, trusting that it's God who saves. Notice here that Jesus connects this appeal for the church to fruitfully ab abide in Him to evangelism and prayer. And so, in light of Jesus' words, our, our relationship with Jesus ought to overflow in love and obedience, in bold prayer in the name of Jesus, in accordance with His Word and will and way. And recognize that Jesus, who is growing His vine, who is building His kingdom through the Gospel, He does it through the proclamation and the prayers of His people. That's the point here. And so in response, let's continue to proclaim the good news of the Gospel and pray boldly for the salvation of those around us. Write down or think of two different names that you can maybe pursue this week 
to proclaim the gospel to them and to pray for their salvation. Fruitful evangelism begins with prayer. Begins with prayer. Well, we should close. Pulling those six points together, it says in verse 8, our abiding in Christ, our fruitfulness in and through Him, proves our union with Him. So if you are a Christian, prove it. If you're a Christian, prove it. Prove that His Word is abiding in you. And pursue a faithful and fruitful life in Him. But let's also ultimately trust and rest in the assurance that at the end of the day, our life and our fruitfulness is not dependent upon how firmly we hold on to Christ or how, how uh, you know, fervently we obey Him or how fervently we abide in Him. No, no, no. But our life and fruitfulness is fully dependent upon Him. Christ is the true vine who was fruitful and faithful in our place. And He has brought and is bringing His people into union with Him by faith, by grace. All power and glory belongs to Him. And He is the one at work in our lives. And He is the one who will bring about faithful and fruitful living if we abide in Christ, the true vine. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Son, we thank You. Spirit, we thank You that You have brought a people into union with Yourself through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we ask that You would make us a faithful and fruitful people. One that is fully relying upon and dependent upon the sovereign grace that You have so revealed through Your Son, Jesus. We thank you for what you have done and are doing and will do in our lives. And we'll give you all the praise and glory for it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.